Good morning. Good to see you guys this morning. I just want to make you aware that there is one couple that I was going to say you're going to be seeing them for the last time, but I don't think it's quite that dramatic. It just means you're not going to be seeing them every Sunday as we have gotten used to seeing them every Sunday for many, many years since they were much smaller in stature and have gotten married and now are moving to the North Shore to be a part of Christ Community Church on the North Shore. So we're grateful to be sending them as a team to minister there as well. Uh, But that would be Mark and Amber Berger. Where are you guys this morning? This will be their stand up so everybody knows. We are... We are, we are happy and not happy all at the same time. Uh, this has been just such a quality couple in our midst for many, many years, have served in all kinds of capacities, have sought ways to care for others in the body of Christ here and participate eagerly. Uh, the excitement is that we know they're going to bring that to Jeff's church and to the guys over there. And for that, we're very excited, grateful to be furthering the mission and how things are going on the North Shore. So your prayers go, please, with, with them. They close on a house this week, and we'll be moving at the end of the week to the North Shore. And, you know, just a small trip back, though. You know, I, I do have to tell the North Shore people this. So I know you're still kind of a South Shore person at this point, but there's another bridge that comes south on the causeway. I, you know, the guys over there don't know about it, so it's a secret, but you can drive back and visit us. It just, it works that way. All right. Uh, one other thing I want to highlight for you is in your uh, handout this morning, you will see uh, racial diversity and church unity is an opportunity for us to have a conversation in those two categories here in the church uh, with a dear brother, uh, if you guys have got a chance to know Ben and Kirsten through the years, they've been here at Lakeview for about three years now since Ben started playing for the Saints. Unfortunately, Ben has signed with another team. <laughs> ben, wave at everybody. Just so, yeah, okay. Yeah, don't say anything bad about him yet, okay? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can defend yourself next week. I've got some questions for you about that whole thing. Uh, but, you know, I'll share some more of this next week. But um, God has given Ben a unique perspective and a unique ability to communicate in the category of racial issues. Uh, what, what you would need to know is, is Ben, first and foremost, is, is a brother in Christ who loves the kingdom of God and is eager to see God's glory uh, upon the earth. And uh, He has gained quite an audience of folks who are listening to what he has to say about race issues, and he's bringing some unique insights into that community, into that category in our country. He's written a book uh, called Under Our Skin, and we're going to talk a bit about that next week when he's with us. Uh, but let me, let me just let this cat out of the bag for you this week. What, when, I, you know, when I look around, we, you know, we, we are a predominantly white church. Uh, by God's grace, that has been changing over the last several years, and we're grateful for that. But one of the things that I want Ben to help us with next week is not only <clears throat> to help address issues of race, 
but they help us learn as a local church how to be a diverse group of people that are together for the kingdom of God. And when, when you read Ben's book, and I hope you've gotten Ben's book and you've read it already, if you haven't, I commend it to you. Uh, one of the things that was so wonderfully helpful was to just travel through Ben's story, travel through his life, and listen to what is it like to grow up as an African-American. Because I, I know nothing about that. And, and, if, and you know, most of us who are here know nothing about that. And I don't say that to criticize. It's like, shame on you. It's like, I'm white. What do you want me to do? I came out that color. Uh, I grew up in a certain location. I got around certain things. So I, there's so much about what Ben's experience and what our other African-American members of the church have experienced that when you begin to understand that, it, it informs our, our humanity together, right? We're not just Christians who are all in Christ together. You know, there's a, there's a chunk of us that came out of Adam that still is real to us. I don't know how you checked last time, but who I am physically in this world is still real to me. And so our past matters and it affects who we are today. So we're, we're going to have a great time just learning some things, getting some greater perspective. Uh, what, what you can do this week is let other folks know that we're going to be doing this next week. So, you know, whether you do that on social media, uh, whether you've got some friends, maybe you've got folks that you're connecting with or relating to, no matter what their race background, it'd be an interesting thing just for, for whether you're white or whether you're black to hear what God's going to be sharing with us next week uh, as Ben opens his heart and his life to us. So please make mention of that and make promotional note of that. We're eager for folks to, to have an opportunity to come in contact with the gospel as we hear about racial diversity and church unity. All right, well, I was going to say open your Bible to Exodus chapter 19. That's where we're parked. We are parked in Exodus chapter 19. I'm actually not going to uh, interact with Exodus 19. I just want us to be parked there mentally. This is the fourth week that we're going to spend visiting Exodus chapter 19. So uh, here, here's why we're doing this, right? If we were on a, on a journey here and we got in, the, got in the car with God's people and we traveled out of Egypt and we took a couple of months trip in the family sedan and we, we got to the giant historic museum, if you will, known as Mount Sinai and there's a big parking lot there and we all pulled up and we parked right here and we're about to go in to Mount Sinai. We're about to go into what takes place at the Mosaic Covenant. Now, uh, one of the reasons we're studying the book of Exodus is because of this. Because for the rest of your time in the Old Testament, you're going to be referencing whatever was given and shown and depicted there at Mount Sinai. And if you don't get that very well, well, then you don't get a lot of the Bible. And if you don't get a lot of the Bible, that's just not a good, healthy thing for us as believers. But when we, when we venture in, I want to prepare us, right? So I wanted us to go in with a good mindset of what exactly are we about to study? What are we going to become aware of as we venture into Mount Sinai and listen to God give his law and his commands and the, the old covenant is, is going to be right here? Well, what we're going to bump into is we're going, to, we're going to bump into words like laws. You're about to be inundated with laws and commands and requirements and conditions what, what do we do with that? Right? And I don't know, maybe you're not real familiar with the Bible. I bet you're familiar with this, though, the thought that 
do's and don'ts, rules and laws, that's religion, right? That's what religion's all about. When you think about religion, that's what it's made up of. Do this and don't do that. This group ascribes to this set of rules. This group ascribes to this set of rules. But basically, it's about rules. And it's about performing those rules. And it's about being a good person, right? I mean, we even use terminology in a strange way. Somebody does something that we come in and we say, well, that was a very Christian thing to do. Very Christian thing to do? What, what's a Christian thing to do? Well, we mean that was a good thing. That person was good, right? So we install these ideas that religion is about being good based on a set of rules. And where do we get those ideas from? Well, we get them from Mount Sinai. We get them from reading this part of the Bible. And then we get this reaction, right? Here, Christianity, we try to explain Christianity. We say, well, no, that's not exactly what Christianity is. Uh, I, know, I know it sounds like it's about rules. Listen, it's not about rules. It's about... Somebody taught you that, right? All right, now let me just say, and I'm not picking on this because it is about relationship. This is a covenant being made at Mount Sinai. It is about a relationship with God as human beings. So the book is very much about relationships. But, but we did something when I said that, right? I said it in a way that we all say it. It's not about rules. It's about relationships. So what I just installed when I said that was a bit of a get those rules off of me. Because whatever Christianity is, it's not about rules. I don't even know what it is about, but I just know this. It's not about rules. So now I've installed this like allergic response that anywhere I, I bump into an idea that sounds like a rule, somebody commanding something, an imperative, do this and don't do that. I mean, I, I want to do something with that, like get it off of me. And it, it wrecks our theology. It creates a real problem in our theology because it makes us travel through the rest of the Bible allergic to anything that sounds like a command, anything that sounds like a work. That's, a, that's works. That's works. Well, I don't know. Is that a problem? Is it a problem for it to be works? Oh, well, yeah. Well, it's a problem if we misunderstand, as we said last week, and I can't cover this ground again this week, but I will put our equations back up just because this is a math class. You thought it was a lesson from the Bible. This is really a math class. Here's our salvation equation. And this is, this is the salvation equation from the fall on. There, there's not another equation somewhere. You can't find another means of being saved. It's not as though, and I know, and I had somebody come up to me and mention this to me after the message last week. It's like I was just asking this question about how did people get saved in the Old Testament? Because we have some kind of an idea that there got installed in the past, in the Old Covenant, a different way to get to God, a different way to fix what's wrong with us and God. And, and, but somehow in the New Covenant, we get saved one way, but the people in the Old Covenant got saved a different way. No. Everybody who ever gets saved is saved from being contaminated by sin. Sin has come into every one of us. And so once it's polluted us, any attempt at working your way to fix that is over. Even if you could go on a hot streak and say, you know what, you know, I came in this world, inherited some sin from Adam, but you know what, ever since I've been like one, I haven't sinned, man. I am on a tear. You know, so I got 40 years in a row of no sinning going on. You, you do realize you're still disqualified. 
because you inherited sin from Adam. So even if you didn't even cry wrong as a baby, never had a selfish moment when you were an infant, you're still disqualified. But the reality is all of us have got a resume and our resume is filled with sin. So how good would it be for God to say, hey, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give one more whack at this works thing, okay? We're going to, y'all pull up the Mount Sinai, and I'm going to install a whole new thing here. And, and so now, this is how you get to me. Ten commandments, bunch of rules, you keep them, and you're in, man. All right, let's go. Come on, guys. You can do this. That's not Mount Sinai, right? We get saved by grace, and we receive that by faith. And when we are saved, there is a force in us that begins to express itself in works. Works belong in the equation. We're not supposed to jettison and be allergic to anything that sounds like a command and a work and an activity and a condition and a responsibility. I don't know, did I put my other equation in here today? Right? What your equation cannot look like is this, that your works, you perform, and somehow you get God now to respond to your performance with grace. God will save you, and there's plenty of grace available, but you've got to meet a standard. You've got to do something to get God to give that to you. You've got to perform at some kind of a level. So as long as you do some kind of works there. Now, if you use works that way, you should have an allergic response. If you're hearing conditions and commands and requirements and works and you're locating it here in the equation, then you're out of bounds. You're teaching something the Bible does not teach because your works are tainted with sin. And so whatever we have to offer, the Bible says our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. And it's quite a disgusting term that's actually being used there. So even when I'm doing well, sin has tainted who I am because I come from the race of Adam. So listen, you can never be saved. There is not a means of salvation that involves your works helping you to achieve that. But that doesn't mean we boot works out of the equation, right? Remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace, this is not just a New Testament terminology here. This is, this is true of everyone in Scripture who gets saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, right? Your salvation and the grace and even the faith that you have to respond to God is not a result of of your work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, so if that's what governs our salvation experience, we're standing today and we're looking back at the old covenant. What do we, what do, we do with this old covenant? What do we do with this law? Right, law, it sounds terrible, doesn't it? It's the law. What do we do with it? Do we love it? Do we cherish it? Do we meditate on it? Do we study it? Do we come to know it deeply? Or do we loathe it? It's the law. It's man's filthy attempts at reaching God. We want nothing to do with that. That shouldn't even be mentioned as a Christian. Right now, let me just give away a bias here. Right, if I were to ask you, 
What books of the Bible do you know the least about? Which books have you spent the least amount of time reading, studying, and getting to know? Right? Everybody can quote something from the Gospel of John. Congratulations. <laughs> but what do we do with this Bible, right? I know you can't do, if you have an app this morning, you can't do this. <laughs> you have no idea, so you can't even tell. But this is how much of the Bible is considered the Old Covenant. This is how much of the Bible is considered the New. Do you seriously think God wrote all that and said, listen, at some point you can just take the scissors out and cut off, whack off the heavy part. Why, why carry all that stuff around? It's got nothing to do with you. You don't even need to know it because you're under the new covenant. God forbid you'd be under the law. Right? What do we do with this book? Well, all right, don't anybody raise your hand here, but if you told me what books of the Bible you don't spend much time reading, you told me the books of the Bible you've never read. They're over here, aren't they? You kind of know these pretty well, but these are over here. Can I, can I say this is a really light book without this? In a lot of ways. And I don't mean just by way. Yeah, that's right, Keith. You get rid of that, you lighten the load. No, no, no. This content, it's very light. It's very light to you. Because you don't get this. Ignoring this, not knowing what to do with it, makes this become less and less meaningful. You think you know what it says. Can I just tell you, if you don't know what this part says, you don't really understand what this part says either. All right, so, you know, why are we hanging out here at Exodus 19? Well, to get a better understanding of how to read our Bibles, Really? and to benefit from them and, and to experience all that they have for us. So here's what I want to do today. I, I want us to better understand how does the old covenant fit into God's plan, God's big plan. So I, if you're not familiar with the Bible here, uh, can, can you please just be patient with me? Do come back next week. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feed you so many chapters from the Bible today. If you're not familiar with any of these, you're gonna, just going to listen with, okay, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. Now, if you know some of these places, then, then we're going to be able to do fine. But I can't spend time in all of them because it would take us forever to do that. So let me put up my Covenant of Grace slide this morning. Here's, what, here's the program that God has been unfolding since the fall. You guys got a slide back? There we go. Somewhere I lost my fall part of that slide. But... The fall kicks in, and so we've all fallen from right relationship. Death has entered in. We are, we have, there's a spiritual boundary between us and God now. So our condition is that we are in need. We're in need of life. We're in need of being reconciled to God. There was an, a created order that God wanted for us. That sin has come in and polluted it. So that's the fall. God has gone to work ever since. And he has revealed his works in a variety of these covenants that he's made. And what I want to install today is an awareness that these covenants, Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, they're, they're all an unfolding of God's plan. They're not different plans. They're not like, you know, there was a different category in heaven that was in charge of this project. Hey, you know, that one didn't work. Let's try a different covenant. Okay, when we get to the Mosaic covenant, it's the next unfolding of God's means of saving humanity 
by grace. So all of it sits underneath the umbrella of the, the covenant of grace that God has made with, with his people to save them. So what happens here in each one of these covenants? All right, so here's a quick flyover of each of these covenants. Notice what is and is not in them, right? And you're going to have to remember some of this with me because I'm not going to have you turn there, right? So we come to the Noahic covenant, the covenant God made with Noah. Uh, Really, there's an arrangement that God makes with him that God is going to destroy the entire world with a flood in judgment, right? You read the Bible and the Bible reveals some things about God. Did you know God judges things? Did you know God doesn't have a problem destroying every human being on earth, now, that's disturbing. That's the Bible, right? So I'm not creating this. God. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. So God destroys the earth by flood. God, in grace, selects a man and preserves him and his family in an ark that passes through this judgment and comes out the other side. And then God makes a covenant with Noah. And it's a very limited covenant. It's very narrow, doesn't cover a lot of ground. It's basically a a promise of preservation. God says, I'm not going to destroy the earth any longer by flood. But we kind of know what's coming in the Abrahamic covenant. We know what's coming in the Mosaic covenant. Do you notice what's not in the Noahic covenant? There's no discussion of land. There's no discussion of God dwelling with Noah ever again. There's no discussion of laws Right? We have some sense that right and wrong is on the table because God just destroyed the whole world because of the wrongness of man. But what exactly is the wrongness? Well, we don't really get to hear a lot of the details of that. Right? So very limited element of revelation here. O. Palmer Watson says something. I want to hold on to his phrase here. He says, God does not relate to his creation through Noah apart from his ongoing program of redemption. Right, this is what you and I are engaging when we read the Bible. This is what this book is about. From the fall, God has an ongoing program of redemption where he's bringing man back to something. That's what the Bible is about. The Bible is not a wise collection of sayings that we quote like we do you know, some proverb list of just grab some ideas and quote them. It's a storyline of God redeeming man and bringing him back. So that's what was true with Noah. That's still true for Abraham, right? So we get to the Abrahamic covenant. There's, there's grace in this Abrahamic covenant. Nobody has a hard time seeing that, right? Genesis 12, Genesis 15, God chooses a man who's an idol worshiper. So out of God's grace in his own heart, he chooses a man who is facing in the wrong direction, worshiping the wrong thing, and he chooses to be gracious to him and establish a covenant with him full of God's promises. And listen, none of this is based on the performance of Abraham. Abraham doesn't get chosen because he's better than anybody else. He doesn't get, you know, like, here's five promises. You would have just got three, but you've really been doing awesome lately. So you get a couple extra. The bonus promises, Abraham. God's got these promises in his own heart, and he gives them to Abraham, a special people. Abraham's going to be a blessed nation that's going to bless the other nations in the world. He's going to get a specific geographic land, right? When you read Genesis 15, it's like God points out the the geography of a land, a specific land that God's going to give to Abraham's descendants. But in this covenant with Abraham, there's very little mention of morals, 
There's very little guidelines about everybody, how they're supposed to behave, how they're supposed to treat each other, whether we know men do this, women do this. There's none of that there. God doesn't discuss dwelling with Abraham. You're going to be my people. But, you know, there's like 25 years between God making this promise and nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened. It's not as though God's been visiting every week. God doesn't make any kind of promise to dwell with Abraham. But that's going to come later. Right? So when we, before we get into this covenant, right, turn to Galatians real quickly with me. I'm going to give you a little quick tour of some thoughts about the old covenant. So in the new covenant, we look at Galatians. And there's some, some challenging thought here in Galatians. Galatians almost sounds like it's hostile to the old covenant. It's got some things to say about the old covenant. But it's going to help us interpret it a bit. So in Galatians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul is speaking about the covenant with Abraham, and he says this. He says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Right? Not, to, not to the Jews, to the Gentiles. Because the blessing of Abraham was that he would be a nation who would bless the nations. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Wait, wait, wait. God didn't say anything to Abraham about a spirit. Well, keep reading in the Bible. The plan's going to unfold. Does this mean it's a new idea? Well, no. Apparently, from Paul's understanding, is all the way back when Abraham was receiving promises, God had in mind the promise of the spirit to be given to Jews and Gentiles. So God's plan and God's mind exists when God talks to Abraham, but he doesn't talk to Abraham about the Spirit. And this is where I want you to just see this plan is unfolding. Verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So now we learn that the Abrahamic covenant is going to find its fulfillment in Christ. This is where this thing unfolds. It just keeps unfolding and unfolding and unfolding. And this covenant lands on the person and the work of Christ. But did you catch this little... This is like legalese here. I might ask Bill to come explain it to us. In a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. So when we get to the Mosaic covenant, is God annulling the Abrahamic covenant? I've got a new idea here, guys. It's no longer about my promises and about grace. It's all about works. It's all about your works, which we're shifting gears here. Well, that would be an annulling of what God did in the Abrahamic covenant rather than an unfolding of that. All right, so let's, let's come to the Mosaic covenant now. All right, so we land the next chapter of, you know, God is taking his big and he's unfolding something else now into the Mosaic covenant. Now, when we say Mosaic covenant, all of us, you know, we think law, right? Here comes the law. This is going to be about law. Does, does anybody recognize how much grace is revealed in the Mosaic covenant? So we don't stop and think, oh, this is, this is about grace. Well, how did they get to Mount Sinai? By works of the law? No. 
by grace. God shows up in Egypt. They're afflicted. They're in bondage. God graciously shows up because he made a gracious promise to Abraham. And God rescues them and delivers them out of Egypt. And he brings them to the mountain. And before they ever arrive there, he already is saying they are his people. These are my people. So God is acting toward them in grace. He's not bringing them to Mount Sinai to cut a deal with them that says, you know what? You guys ain't nothing yet, but I tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. If you'll keep my Ten Commandments and my other laws, you get to be my people. All right? How's that sound? Good? How many people think that's what the Old Covenant says? But you, you actually get to Mount Sinai, they're already God's people by grace. So that might help us to understand, well, what exactly is going to happen at Mount Sinai then if they're already God's people? And then the grace just keeps coming, right? Before they left Egypt, God brought judgment on the land. And his judgment would only, listen, would only be spared when he saw the blood of the innocent. That's the only thing that would stay his judgment. That's a problem. Because guess what? There aren't any innocent in Egypt, and there aren't any innocent in Israel either. So if God pulls up to Egypt and says, you know what, this, I'm going I'm to judge this land, and he pours out judgment on that land, everybody's going down. Everybody. The Israelites are going down, and the Egyptians are going down. Unless God sees innocent blood that's been shed. If I see blood, I will have mercy and spare you of the judgment that you deserve. Is that grace? That's grace. Because the only one doing the work in this deal is the lamb. He did all the work. He, he cut the throat. All the blood came out. They wiped it over their doorpost. They received what God said by faith. And then they get to Mount Sinai, and we hear in the book of Leviticus, you know, one of those books that none of us like to read, and we hear about this thing called the atonement. This idea that God would take the sin that polluted you as a race, the sin that corrupted everything about you, and then it has put up a wall between a holy God and who you are. He would take that sin and he would put it upon these innocent animals, slay their lives, let their blood be shed, and transfer their sin to another goat and let it escape and take the sins away. Is that works or is that grace? Do you read anywhere in the Old Covenant in this giving at Mount Sinai that says, listen, ignore what's behind the curtain over there, that, that slayed animal thing. Just forget about that for a second. If you want to be forgiven and get right with God, you're going to have to work for it. All right? You got that? Come on, guys. We can do this. Work really hard. That's confusing, isn't it? Why give a works that can accomplish justification if you've got to slay animals to accomplish justification? So maybe we've stuck our works in the wrong place, right? Maybe we don't need to freak out when we read about works. Let me show you some unique things, right? Because this is unfolding, right? We got the Noah covenant and we get to Abraham, some more stuff unfolds. Now we get to Moses and some more stuff unfolds that is unique to the Mosaic covenant, right? A couple of thoughts here. First, the Mosaic Covenant reveals the sinfulness of sin and our need for a Savior, for a substitute, somebody to stand in our place. 
right? Listen to this if you still got your finger there in Galatians chapter 3, verse 17. It says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward. After what? After God made a covenant with Abraham. The law comes 430 years later. Does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So as to make the promise void, right? Okay, now you got to work for this. It was a promise, but now you got to work for it. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Well, why then the law? It was added. It was unfolded. It was revealed because of transgressions. Until, right, so it's got a temporary assignment, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been given. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, right? So do we get to the Mosaic covenant and God suddenly shifts and he's got a whole new thing going on now? That he offers to man. No, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Can I use the word unfolded? Right? This is one plan in God that just keeps unfolding. And the next part, and the next part, right? Well, at Mount, at Mount Sinai, not all of it gets unfolded. Just the next flap gets unfolded. And so they don't get a full revelation, but they get a partial revelation. And then this is how Paul explains this unfolding. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So did God make up justification by faith when Jesus came? Or was it always God's plan? It was always God's plan. And it uses careful language here. Something gets installed, right? We keep unfolding. Fall, Noah, Abraham, Moses, we get to Mount Sinai and we get this revelation about what God is going to be doing here, right? And right now, until we arrive there, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna corral you guys. I'm gonna make you stand right here. Stand right here in this spot, right here. Don't, don't move. Well, that's this imprisonment. The law is given to imprison us in a certain spot. It's to make a stand in a particular place until the answer comes. Some of them say guardian. There's a guardian here, a tutor. Some of your translations will use that word. You know, a guardian is given to a, a minor, a young person, until they can reach the age to make their own decisions. The guardian kind of protects them and brings them to that point. All right, so we're learning what's the deal with the law. Well, the law was given to guard us and make us stand in one spot to bring us to a place where when the answer comes, we actually want the answer. 
That's what the law is trying to do. Right? So Paul says this again in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. He says, what, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I, I was once alive apart from the law. That's an interesting statement. Right? It can't mean he was alive in the sense that God would make us alive because he was as cut off from God as he ever could be. But it sure felt like I was alive until the law came in and started throwing flags on the play left and right. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So, so then the law is, here, collect these words, holy. And the commandment, is holy and righteous and good. How are you supposed to feel about the old covenant? It's holy and righteous and good. Now listen, if you pick it up and you locate it on the front end of your equation, it's none of those things. But if you let it be where it's supposed to be, it's holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Well, may it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, right? Through the law. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. How do you and I know what sin is? We have, let me just say this, as members of the race of Adam, and all of us are, we have a very untrained eye when it comes to sin. We tend to not see it. We tend to not notice it. Even now, even after God gave the law, don't we all tend to minimize it left and right? Justify it, explain why I did. Well, why I did was because somebody else. We've got all these explanations for our sin. We tend to not see sin. But, sin, but the law came in because of transgressions. Well, what do you mean the law came in because of transgressions? The law was given to help you see them. You guys don't seem to be getting this. Let me spell it out. This is sin, and 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 this is sin because of who I am. This is sin, and this is sin, and this is sin. Are you starting to notice any sin in your life yet? It's a revealer, right? That it might be shown to be sin. Do you have any idea how important it is to you to see your sin? Do you have any idea? Because there is this radical, radical solution to sin in the Bible that I promise you, if you don't see the need for it, you're not going to be interested in it. There's not a, one of us who is quick to give up the ownership of our right, our life, 
I want my life. I want it to be a certain way. I want a certain path. I want certain relationships. I want certain things in my life. I want to be in control of my life. Well, the solution is about you giving up control of your life. And you're not going to do that lightly. So the law comes in to help you be motivated to do that. It highlights sin. It's a specialist at doing that. Right? Let me give you an illustration. I had the joy this week of visiting my skin doctor. It's always a fun experience for me and filled with unknown factors. Just think I'm going in. Here, have a look. Looks good to me. I don't see any problems. But see, then again, I have this untrained eye problem. So I walk away from a moment where in, in my professional abilities to see skin cancer, I think I'm good. This will be a quick visit. I'll be in and out, go about my day. No, no. She's going to proceed to burn me 15 times and cut four biopsies out of my body and send them off to a lab where somebody is going to look at them under a microscope. Right, now, I've had this done before, and sometimes that microscope comes back and says things that you really don't want to hear and that you didn't know was there. Right, 2010, I think it was. I went in just thinking, hey, I got a spot on my back. Can't seem to get it to go away. Can you have a look at that? Of course, in my very trained eye, my dermatologist looked at that and she said, oh, that's not a problem. But what's that on your arm? What do you mean, what's that on my arm? It's an arm. <laughs> well, what's that, though? I think we need to have a look at that. I didn't come in for that. I had no knowledge that that was a problem. And so she went on to do a biopsy where they cut a chunk of flesh off and they send it to somebody to stare at under a microscope. And, of course, that microscope saw things that I didn't see and that no one could see with the naked eye. It saw cancer. And so I get a phone call back that you need to come in and meet with us. We've discovered you have melanoma. And question. When the doctor approaches me and says, okay, we'd, we'd like to cut a big chunk of your arm off. I thought it was going to be a little chunk until they started to cut and it turned into like this six inch gash. I'm like, what are you doing? It's like a real estate grab. <laughs> There's no way that I'm signing up for surgery without being convinced that I have cancer. What convinced me that I had cancer? The microscope. The microscope showed me that I had an issue that I didn't know how to see and I didn't know how to understand, but it was going to kill me if I left it alone. So all of a sudden, that guy with the, the big knife isn't such a bad option after all. <laughs> no seeing, no surgery. And it's that way spiritually as well. No seeing our sin, no Savior. So it's a pretty gracious thing God does, doesn't he? Amen. Yes. He takes this and he says, here, I've, 
got this microscope. Would you take your life and stick it underneath this for a few minutes and just let it show you something about you? See, that, that's what the law was doing. The law was saying, stand right here. Stand right here underneath this microscope. And when the law goes to work on you, it's going to prepare you for the day that the Savior is coming and you're going to cry uncle on that day because you're going to see the law and how it reveals to you that you can't fix yourself, you're never going to be good enough, and I've got tons of bad news for you, but I've got good news for you. I only wanted that good news because the bad news convinced me. I couldn't fix myself. I would not, I would not self-heal. So, listen, if, if you're used to being in a church that minimizes this portion of the Bible, just minimize it, doesn't say much about it, doesn't deal with commands and requirements and righteousness, you never get to visit that God at Mount Sinai who freaks you out, makes you, makes you tremble, makes you afraid, who never commands and gives these requirements. So you, you go to a church that never speaks about that, and then they present to you a Jesus. What's he all about? Well, he's, he's just kind of a, I don't know, spiritual advisor, isn't he? He's got some good ideas. Wouldn't you like to improve your life, make it a little better? Wouldn't you like an upgrade? Wouldn't you like to feel close to God? Do you have any idea how impossible it is for you to ever feel close to God? Do you know why I know how difficult that is? Because I've read the law. You know, you get a depiction of the God who shakes everything in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 12, good place to visit. Evan mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. The, the comparison is, you know, the God who shook stuff in the Old Covenant? He's still the same God. And he's still shaking everything that can be shaking. How do, how do I get this sense of urgency about me? Right, because somebody comes along and says, Keith, you've got cancer. Okay, well, if I'm like a cancer idiot, I'm like, what, what is that, like candy? What, what, what I've got? What do I got? I, 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 what, like a foot, foot fungus? What, what do I have? I just need to stop wearing my shoes without socks? Well, the law comes along and says, no, 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 no. What, what you have is a condition of death. That's what you have. It's serious, and there's nothing you can do to fix it. And the law takes a lot of time to convince you that there's nothing you can do to fix it. Now, let me just say this very carefully to those of us who have been believers for a while. Be very careful about how you love the, how you love the law. Because guess what that microscope did in terms of helping me? Nothing. The microscope came along and said, this is your condition. Sorry. Oh, hey, well, can you help me? Well, no, I'm, I'm just a microscope. <laughs> Can't help you. Listen, the law offers you no help. No help. And the mistake that we make is to pick the law up and try and help ourselves with it. And then you just bump into the misuse of the law, which is what most of the New Testament is attacking. It's not attacking the law and whether the law was a good thing or not. It's attacking the misuse of it. So when it comes to commands and works, you can misuse those things. It's going to put you in a, quite a bit of trouble. Let me skip to this next 
issue. Mosaic Covenant reveals more deeply God's goal in redemption in this, restoring his presence to us, restoring his dwelling to us. I'm going to take time on this at another time, so I'm not going to go into this very much. But you do realize you show up at Mount Sinai, there's all these laws being given, and then Exodus 25 turns the corner, and there's going to be all this revelation given about this thing called a tabernacle, never discussed before, right? Noah, any idea about a tabernacle? Nope. Abraham, any idea about a tabernacle? Nope. Get to Mosaic, unfold another flap, and God brings up a new subject, and he says, hey, I've got this thing called a tabernacle. It's, it's like a portable building where I hang out with you. I dwell with you. My presence dwells, right? We're going to learn about this as we get into Exodus further. Chapter 25, verse 8, God says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Never revealed before. God wants to hang out with us. God wants to be among us. Now, quite honestly, I think a, quite a bit of the reason why you have so much guidelines given here in the Mosaic Covenant, it's got everything to do with the holy God of the universe is going to be among us. And he is pleased to dwell with us, but he is not pleased by everything. Don't make that mistake. God is pleased to dwell with us, therefore he doesn't really care about what we do. He's just pleased. Well, that's not the God in the Bible. Certain things matter to God. He's not all right with certain things. And he's going to be in our midst. I think that's why we get so much revelation here. But we'll come back and, and pick that one up. But just notice this part is going to be in the new covenant too. Right? You do see that. Right? This is not like we hate the old covenant. Hey, where did you learn about the dwelling presence of God? At Mount Sinai. What gives you any idea that we would be the tabernacles of God? We would be the temples. Of, where'd you get that idea from? Mount Sinai. You want to you junk that too? Because we're junking works today, right? Just junking it. Well, let's junk that too. That, that was given at Mount Sinai. No, 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 we were going to keep that part. Oh, great. So now we're going to start keeping part and junking part and keeping part and junking part. All right, what part are you keeping? What part are you junking and Why? If I understand this is a covenant of God's grace and he's just unfolding so I can better understand how to receive what he does here. One more quick insight. The Mosaic Covenant uniquely installed laws that accompanied the system of sacrifice and their nationhood. Right? So at Mount Sinai, they received a giant dose, not just of moral laws, but they were going to be a nation with a territory. They, they had a border. And there was going to be a governance of the people who lived in that border. And they were going to have installed during that unfolding civil laws. You know, like almost everything down to speed limits is going to be in this civil law. You're going to do things a certain way. And if people don't do it that way, here's how you handle that with civil law. And then there's a massive amount of laws and commands that are given that have to do with the tabernacle and the sacrifices and approaching God and cleanness and uncleanness. So all these ideas get installed in this unfolding. But we're about to get to the new covenant here in a second and there's going to be another unfolding. And when this unfolds, it's going to do something to what we do with that. This was temporary on its way to this. 
And if you don't recognize this, especially in today's day and age, you, you get these morally confusing questions that flow out of, you know, people just look at the Bible, it's like, well, it's just, just the Bible. You know, it's just a, a book with stuff in it, phrases and cool wisdom points. So answer me this, Christian. You know, in the Bible it says if you commit adultery, you'd be taken out and stoned to death. What, so how come y'all aren't stoning anybody? Or the idea that, well, you know what the Bible prescribes, because this is, this is, this is how the, the world that has a gay agenda to it wants to go find a passage that makes the Bible sound like this ridiculous thing. Kill the gay people. It's in the Bible, man. It's in the Bible, okay? Well, what do you do with that? How do you explain that any of you here today who have committed adultery, we're not going to be taking you out in front of the church and stoning you to death. Why don't we do that anymore? Why don't we practice all the ceremonial cleansing that's here in Scripture? That before we bring any kind of an offering to God, we have to go through some rituals to cleanse ourselves, to deal with our sinfulness before we get near God. Why, why do we not keep doing that? Now, some people don't have answers to this, and it makes you turn the Bible into a weird book. Right? The Abrahamic covenant actually promised land. Right? You, you put your feet on it. And at one point you could go, promise, not promised. Promised, not promised. And I've seen Christians do this. I, I've seen ministries do this. Because God said to Abraham, everywhere that your feet will tread, I have given you. I've seen people pick that Bible verse up and go, you know, Hey, guys, we're praying about relocating the church, and the elders and I, we just went out and just, we just walked, we just walked some land out over here. We just claimed everywhere that God, that our foot is tread, God has given us. What the heck are you talking about? <laughs> that, was, that was an unfolding that happened way back there to another man in another setting to illustrate something about the future. Yes, it was about a promised land, but you do realize your promised land doesn't have the same geography that Abraham's had. And aren't you glad? Have you seen on the map where it's located? <laughs> right, our promised land, that was an illustration of something that would be better fulfilled and understood later. Listen, if you don't get this stuff, you pick the Bible up and it's just a mysterious, weird book, isn't it? But it's just a plan. It's, it's just unfolding chapter after chapter. It's unfolding, right? So let's, let's unfold and get to the new covenant here, right? In the new covenant, grace is now fully revealed in Christ. All these hints of grace, all these activities of God, all the conditions in God. Did you know there's conditions in God? Well, God made an unconditional promise to Abraham. Yes and no. God's strict conditions were going to be met by somebody else besides Abraham, but they were going to be met. And we keep unfolding and unfolding and unfolding, and we get to the new covenant, and we discover that all these covenants was about God making a covenant with himself in the form of a man named Jesus Christ, who was God, who came and fulfilled everything that came before him. The one man who could ever pick the law up and say, 
I can be justified by the law. The only man who could have ever done that. And he did. And he fulfilled everything that the law required. So when we get to the new covenant, all these shadows and hints, they've been fulfilled now. So that's why we don't stone the adulterers. But, but you know, we do discipline the adulterers. See, this is where you kind of get weird, right? You get into the new covenant, and it's like, all of a sudden, God's like chilling, man. He's like, he used to be really upset about a lot of these stuff, man. He's just so chilled out in the New Testament. You know, back in the Old Testament, if you committed adultery, there are going to be rocks bouncing off your head. But, you know, in the New Testament, God doesn't even notice it, man. He's so cool in the New Testament. No, he's not. He is the same God. And that's as wrong now as it's ever been. And he actually does call on the church to put people out of the church over those issues. But in this unfolding, he just doesn't tell you under civil law in the land that you now live in, stone them to death. But it still seems to matter to us. Listen, if you, if you fail to see that Jesus has fulfilled all these things, and people do this, man. There are, there are dress codes and food laws and ceremonial things and some civil elements. And we just kind of like go shopping with a little basket. We go running back into the Old Testament. We grab that. We grab that. We grab that. I, you know, I don't like when people do that, so I think I'll have some of that. And I'm going to take with me some of these laws, and I'm going to apply them certain ways into life today. Well, listen, when you do that, you ignore the one who fulfilled it all. Stop ignoring the God who fulfilled all those demands. But that doesn't mean you do whatever the heck you want either. That doesn't mean that we just throw works out the window and none of it matters, right? Here's my final question. Does the new covenant cast off behavior and moral boundaries? Does the new covenant do that? Because, well, I mean, remember, after all, it's not about rules. It's about... So in relationship, if we're in the relationship, then kind of, what does it matter what we do, right? Because it's not about rules, man. Quick, so getting out so uptight about rules. All right, so with that idea, let's correct all the people that are speaking commands to us. We don't, we don't, we're under the new covenant, man. You don't command anything in the new covenant. There's no, there's no boundaries here in the new covenant. All right, well, then explain a couple of these verses to me, starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me. Amen, right? We're good so far. But not all things are helpful. Now listen, when the, when the scripture says all things are lawful for me, right? I don't have my equation up there. We're on the left side of the equation. Right? All things are lawful for me in the sense that I am not obligated to keep the law in order to justify me. That doesn't mean I kick all forms of works and obedience out the window. It just means it's not about justifying me. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God, 
raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now, this is, I don't want to chase this thought here, but they had minimized the physical dimension of human existence in this moment. They had made it where it doesn't matter what you do with your body. And so Paul's trying to say, no, 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 it matters what you do with your body. And by the way, God's going to raise that body. So that body still has a plan in God. So don't act like it doesn't matter what you do with your body because you're spiritual. Right? That's what he's attacking here. So do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. All right, stop real quick. What do you call that sentence? A command. Are there any commands in the New Testament? Well, there's one right there, right? We haven't read too far. Stop it. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Err, wait a minute. When did that happen? I thought the temple was the temple. I thought God hung, I remember that. I read it at Mount Sinai. God talked about building me a tabernacle and then he turned it into a temple and that's God's permanent residence. That's where he lives. If I want to go visit God, I go to that place and he's there uniquely. Well, when did this happen? In the next unfolding. Well, what happened to the tabernacle? He doesn't dwell there anymore. Now, what does that make you do to the tabernacle? Does that make you hate the tabernacle? Does that make you go, see, see, old covenant, see that thing? Man, don't even mention the tabernacle to me. Don't talk to me about that kind of stuff. I'm not under that kind of stuff. Does that make you do that? It's, it was just a chapter of unfolding of revelation that God was doing to bring us to an even greater point. At some point, God was going to say, that was just an illustration. I just wanted you to catch something. I'm not everywhere the same way I am here. And one day, I'm going to return my presence to you. You are going to be my dwelling place. That's what God's been saying and doing from the beginning, isn't it? That's where this whole thing was going. But listen to what he says here. Your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. What do you call that? Restrictions? Boundaries? Right? Didn't you think the new covenant was all about unconditional? Somebody just told me I don't even own me. That sounds pretty conditional and restrictive. I mean, I got to check with somebody else before I go making use of my life? Yep. That's what it says. For you were bought with a price. Really? I'm owned. Does, that, does this sound new covenant? Does this sound like grace to you? It is. So glorify God in your body. So do something a certain way. And in this category, stop doing that sexually immoral activity. Stop it. It doesn't glorify God. 
start doing it this way that does glorify God because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So stop walking in that and start walking in this. Does the Bible tell us how to live? Does it issue commands? Is it directive? Does it give guidance? Yes. Is that a problem? No. If you pick that word up and you say, well, all right, so you're telling me if I, if I stop sleeping around, God will accept me and I'll become his child. Now you got a problem on your hands. It's because you are his child and the spirit of God dwells in you just like the tabernacle that got installed for a people that were already his. He would install his presence in their lives and then he would turn around and tell them how to live. Don't do that anymore because I've got a purpose for you to fulfill. Right, one more passage I'm gonna look at. First Peter. Chapter 2. In your outline there, it says, just because we're no longer under the old covenant law does not mean that God doesn't care or no longer issues commands about how we live. When the New Testament promotes and prohibits, it does both, certain attitudes, actions, and behaviors, it is not seeking to create categories of works that justify us. You'll stop going there. You won't have to have an allergic reaction. Everybody... You hear an imperative, you don't have to freak out over that. It is, however, continuing in the covenant tradition of assigning works to be fulfilled for the purpose and glory of God. Abraham, I know you're an idol worshiper, but I'm choosing you to be my special people. I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make you great. And here's all my promises unfolding, unfolding, unfolding. Now, leave her the Chaldees and go to the land that I'm going to show you. Command, not a command that creates the covenant but still nonetheless a command from the God who made covenant with him. And God still does that. He's done that everywhere in Scripture. There are always commands and things for us to obey in God. All right, so here we are. 1 Peter chapter 2, last thing we'll look at here. Verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, New Testament Christian. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, Heard that before, right? Right, we're just unfolding, right? This sounds like Abraham. This sounds like Mosaic Covenant. Just continues to unfold. Same plan. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Your life is about proclaiming something. So does it matter how you live? Well, it has to matter. If your life is for a purpose, it has to matter. It proclaims something. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once... You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are God's people by mercy. Now listen to this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Stop giving in to the cravings in your flesh. Stop it as a command. Right on the heels of saying you are God's people by mercy to fulfill his purpose. So these commands are not about getting us in with God. They're about us living in the purpose of God, which has been true throughout the Bible, which might help me understand what is taking place at Mount Sinai that I need to better understand. 
Right, you guys are familiar with shadow and substance? Right? There's shadows in the Old Testament, and we live in the substance. Can I, can I just install maybe what's shocking to you? Did you know you still live in the shadows in some ways? All right, this, this is great. Eric, Eric, go ahead and come back up. This is a great celebrating verse. Right, at the end, in Revelation chapter 21, listen to this description. Now listen carefully because it puts you and I in a shadow. It puts us, yeah, the, old, the New Testament has unfolded and there's so much that's been fulfilled and so much revelation that didn't happen before and we see it now. But there's still some more unfolding that's coming. Verse 1 of chapter 21. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Right? You, you recognize you and I are in the first heaven right now. First earth right now. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold the dwelling place, some of your translations say tabernacle, of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So do you understand in that unfolding, whatever it is you and I are experiencing right now about the presence of God is gonna look like a shadow. Because we look back on those guys who had to go visit a tent and say, huh, yeah, look at them. Those old covenant people. They wanted to go see God. They had to go to an address, not us. We carry the spirit of God with us. Everywhere we go, God is with us. Well, you know, there's coming a day in Revelation 21 that that group could look back on us and say, you think you had it good. <laughs> Ain't nothing compared to what we got. Right, just unfolding purpose of God. But I'm going to leave this with you and I'll, I'll, we'll pick up at another time. In Revelation 21, what are they celebrating? The return of the presence of God. Does this give you any idea about what the whole Bible is about? That which was lost in Eden. God has told one story about returning it, which is overwhelming to me. And when we get to Exodus 25 and we meet this God who wants to be with us. Does that grab you? The God of the universe wants to be with us. He wants to intimately dwell with us. He has designed this whole thing so that we might be restored to him and we might be with him. Does, does that grab my heart and cast everything about my life in its shadow? Nothing is more valuable than that. Nothing is more meaningful than that. And whatever stands in the way of it, the Bible comes along and says, get rid of that. Do away with that. Don't do that anymore. Do I want to ignore those things? Or do I want to cherish them? Listen, when I meditate on the old covenant law, there is, there's something of great benefit there if I use it lawfully. I use it the way God designed it to be used Listen, let's, let's stop being a people who are ignoring so much of the Bible. Let's just ignore all that. This is what makes, this is what gives volume to your voice. When you see what God has been doing all these years, 
the God who was forever separated from us has made a way for us to come back. And he wants to dwell with us. Listen, I hope it's been helpful for you to see this, this is the Bible. It's not a confusing bunch of chunks of things that don't go together. It's, it's one program of redemption unfolding one chapter after another. And that Old Testament's got a lot to say to me about this God and about grace. And it'll put amazing back next to the word grace if you'll carefully read it. Let's stand up together. Lord, help us this morning. Help us to be more than just hearers of some ideas. But Lord, help us to be affected by what we've heard. Lord, help a group this big with, with a diversity of challenges in our lives. And, and we're in different places to hear what you need us to hear this morning. What are you hearing from God this morning? What are you hearing from God? Maybe you're here this morning and you've not looked to the law. You've not looked to it. In fact, you've avoided it. You, you don't like rules. You don't like the idea that there's something of a requirement out there. You don't like religions that feel that way. I hope this morning God has let you see something different. law was never given for you to perform it so that you could become good enough for God to accept you. The law was given to crush you under its weight so that you would cry uncle and you would say I can't do this God. And that's not God being mean to you. That's God being a microscope. Sometimes it's awful to see our sin. It feels awful. It's full of guilt and regret and shame. God has not wanted your sin to feel good or you would never want it to be surgically removed. He wants it to feel horrible. But he hasn't left you there. He's provided for you a Savior. When sin is utterly sinful, you will turn to that Savior. Maybe this morning you would want to turn to Him. Stop trying to be good enough for God and just confess to Him, God, I see this morning, I can't be good enough. I can't fix me. I can't return myself to you. hear that there is one who can. That's why Jesus Christ came. He came to do what I couldn't do. He came to fulfill all these laws and demands. 
stand in my place, to take my punishment, to be the innocent lamb who lays his life down for me, the guilty one. So this morning, you, you hear that, well, receive it by faith. That's God's grace. God's grace to you is Jesus Christ, his forgiveness. And the only response you can give God is faith to turn to him and receive it. You can do that right now this morning. Turn to God right now. Stop trying to save yourself. Get out from underneath the weight of that rock that's crushing you. And turn to Christ and say, Jesus, I believe in you. I trust in what you did that I could never do. And I thank you for taking my place and taking my penalty and giving up your life. By faith, I receive you. Now open your heart. Open your heart to God. That God who wants to dwell among his people, he wants to come dwell in your heart. Receive him into your life this morning. Tell him you, you welcome him from this day forward to live whatever things, whatever works God's got for you, you're, you're ready to get about them. You're ready to live for him and for his pleasure in gratitude for all that he's done. This can be the start, day one. Listen, if you can remember, you've, you've come to Christ years ago, but, but maybe you're here this morning and you've sort of gone offline in terms of intentionally glorifying God. You are chosen by him. What a privilege. You're chosen with a purpose to proclaim the excellencies of God, to live in a way that doesn't feed fleshly appetites, it doesn't covet and dishonor parents. The things that you saw at Mount Sinai doesn't do those things. It's a life that's purposed on glorifying God. But maybe, maybe you've forgotten that. Maybe you're here this morning and you've misplaced that in your life. Tell God that right now. Be real with him. Say, God, I've lost my way. You saved me and I recognize that. But I have lost my way. I've not been living for your glory. I've been living for my own reward and my own pursuits. But God, this morning, what I want to do this morning, God, is, is I want to I want to be about glorifying you. God, you've made me yours. I'm already yours. I am your child, and your spirit dwells in me. But I want to live for your glory, and I want to fulfill your purpose. I want the world to see your excellence and your saving grace. So God, this morning, I turn, Lord, I turn to you afresh. Spirit of God, help me, enable me, strengthen me, do what the law never offered to do. But what you have given me a life to do, there's a life in me now. God, live that life through me. God, let every day be one adventure after another. God, help me to, to realize what does it mean for me to be your workmanship, created in Christ for something, for good work. God, what are those things? I want to be about those things, Lord. So God, from this day forward, launch me into what brings glory to you, to your name. 
I thank you. I thank you for your word. Thank you for all that it teaches us. Help us to love the whole book, to grow more fond of you and all that you've done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I bless you guys. Y'all have a great week.